This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Paul, hello, Paul. How you doing? Hello there, my uh, hello, hello there, Aaron. Yes, I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, I'm just listening into Michael. Fascinating half hour that it was very fascinating. Well, Michael's always fascinating, yeah. obviously, on, on on a whole range of different issues. But yeah, it was. Uh, I was in the race position. I have to say, talking about the monarchy is um, in the current times, asking for trouble, and it'd be interesting to see the emails we get later. Um, yeah. So let me just start. Let, let me just. There's a little video here. I want to see if it's just accurate. First of all, and, okay. and it's so, so. What we're talking about, obviously, is sorry to give a bit more context. I'm just leaping into this. So the the news of the last few days seems to suggest that Ukraine has launched a pretty stunning counteroffense against the Russian military, tricking them by um, seeming to do a, a, an offensive elsewhere, which diverted Russian military equipment, and that's allowed them to push forward. Let's just see this. So, there we go. Um, for those listening on the podcast, what we're seeing here is... Ukrainian military positions pushing forward quite dramatically. There does seem to be some suggestions that places that they've not actually launched an offensive against, the Russians have also vacated uh, simply because presumably they fear the Ukrainians are going to take, are going to sweep in. So I suppose my question is, how serious is this? How much of, how successful has this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive actually been? It's difficult to say because we're obviously getting the information primarily from Kiev and from the Ukrainian government. But the indications are they've made a, a lot of progress from their perspective, surprisingly so for many people. And what you were saying about Russians withdrawing from some areas without fighting, well, strategic withdrawals are part of military warfare and they're one of the tactics that you do use. But the wider issue is that if you're looking at the broad spectrum of what is it, well, we're heading towards, what, seven months of war, um, then this is a turnaround over the last month or so compared with much of the middle of the period. If you go right back to the start, what basically Putin wanted to do was to change the Kiev government without a full-scale invasion of the country, but consolidate the Russian control of the eastern part down through to Crimea. That was the aim. It went wrong within a matter of just a few hours when the first attempt to get troops into Kyiv at very short notice through a surprise uh, airdrop on a, a, an airdrome outside the city failed. And in, in fact, the Ukrainians were in some way got wind of it and they actually had a special forces brigade ready to prevent that. From that moment, the war went quite badly for Putin and he was never successful in his achieving his aims. He moved really to a sort of second level of trying to consolidate the Crimea and expand the train, the, the degree of control in the east, right through from 
from the really right across the Donbass region, but right up to Kharkiv, which is after all Ukraine's second city, and up in the north over towards Kiev. And so they never took control of that city, uh, but they did take control of a lot of territory. And things were almost in a kind of rather dangerous, violent stalemate from about three weeks into the war, right through until very recently. But by and large, uh, the Russians were doing nothing like as well as they'd hoped, uh, but nothing like as badly as it could have been. They did withdraw from a lot of territory fairly close to Kiev, and that was an early strategic withdrawal. And they seemed to consolidate then. But they had a number of problems. I mean, obviously, their own armed forces have been far weaker in terms of training and morale than expected. A lot of the equipment hasn't worked as well as they expected. And on the Ukrainian side, a very strong level of morale, I think partly due to Zelensky's personality, but also increasingly more and more support from NATO, particularly the United States, and to some extent Britain and some of the Eastern European countries. And what that means essentially is this is a full-scale proxy war. Yes, the Ukrainians are very much at the sharp end of it, but so much of the equipment that they're getting, particularly very modern equipment, is making the real difference. So for the moment, at least, they've made quite considerable progress. People who are sort of professionally in this field, and I would not claim to be that in any way, do believe that this does not mean that in some way the war is, quote, being won. I certainly go along with that, and I think it's actually becoming, curiously, the reason we can discuss a very dangerous situation. But I know there's a comment from Rathwood earlier on that was shown, which said she just arrived back at her key, the sun was shining, the houses were being rebuilt, and even the next guest can't sour things. So I think one has to remember that in a sense, in that in many ways for the Ukrainians, for much of Ukraine, this has actually been very good news. But, and it's a huge but, this war is not over. It's not a It's a long way from being over. And much of the basically possibility of ending it through negotiations uh, is going to be down to attitudes of countries such as the United States and Britain. We can explore that if you like. But I think that's a dominant thing which we have to remember at this stage. What I'm wondering about is in terms of the Russian army, because they haven't done mass mobilization. So, I mean, they call this obviously a a, um, a military operation rather than a war. So they haven't done their mass mobilization. They sent obviously large numbers of young working class Russians to die, um, often extremely unpleasant deaths, it should be said. Um, but what I'm wondering about is given Ukraine has on its side, obviously, you, you, you have higher morale because you're a country defending yourself from an invasion. So there's a kind of existential question there which faces you. So you have the active support of millions of people, an invader facing basically, you know, resistance from those you're invading. Your morale is already going to be significantly lower, um, you know, unless you, you genuinely think you're fighting some great just war. But also, you know, they've got mass mobilization in a way the Russians don't. And they have this huge Western support. I just don't understand how it's... I mean, how, given the damage inflicted on the Russian army, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it looks like it's very, very substantial. Is it possible for Russia to be able to do a successful fight back unless they do a general mobilization? And is a general mobilization politically possible in Russia? I think a general mobilization is possible, but it would be very difficult to achieve anything substantial. Um, obviously, from the start, Putin's people have stuck very closely to this special military operation and not a war. Even from the start, it's very clear that it was a full-scale war. 
And incidentally, although the Russian infantry by and large are poorly trained, low morale and the rest, and it's also true that many of the troops put in right at the start were more sort of suited to policing than sort of pure fighting. Also at the start, many of the troops that went in right in the beginning were actually elite troops. And they too found it very difficult. So the Ukraine army, I think, performed way greater than expectations than the Russians ever, well, at least the Putin people ever expected. One rather suspects that many Russian uh, soldiers, experienced ones and senior ones, did not expect it to be so easy. But if we're looking ahead now, I think one has to bear in mind that the help that Ukraine has had from the West has been really far larger than people realize and far more persistent. Um, and yes, the high mile systems, these very accurate longer range multiple launch rocket systems have been particularly effective, but they've had sort of almost 24 seven uh, minute by minute intelligence feeding through from the huge American worldwide capability, which has given them an extraordinary range of information about what the Russians are doing. One suspects the Ukrainian military intelligence may know what some of the Russian units are doing before they even know being told themselves. And at that level, there's a lot more equipment going through uh, and even more to come. But the problem is, I mean, we discussed this last time a few weeks ago. What we're in now is a violent stalemate because although it looks people are talking about, you know, Ukraine is going to be victorious and the Russians will have to withdraw. Well, I think that is highly unlikely. Um, because in a sense, there's no chance of Ukraine being defeated now, uh, as far as one can see, because if it really was facing huge difficulties, NATO would simply ump the ante. But on the other hand, uh, Russia itself, under somebody like Putin, always has the option of threatening at least to escalate to tactical nuclear use. And I mean, sometime, Owen, you and I need to talk in more detail about the reality of tactical nuclear war. It is far more worrying than many people realize, but we don't have time to go into it here. But the reality is that there is a risk of that. And there would be if the Russians were pulled, pushed really too far to the edge, um, because we simply don't understand Putin's psychology enough for this. That I think that's one thing that we really do have to bear in mind. There is a, a suspicion. I wouldn't put it higher than that, although personally, the information that seems to be seeping out from opinion in Washington and to some extent in London is that the Western alliance does not want negotiations at the present time, put bluntly. Now, why is that? I think you've got to see there is an element of thinking within NATO, within Washington in particular, um, that this war is turning out to be an extraordinary opportunity to cripple the Russian economy long term. Now, that seems a pretty drastic thing to say, but there's awkward evidence suggesting that. And because of that, I think we've got to factor that in. You know, if you're looking at sort of world strategy from uh, Russia, from uh, United States' point of view, then the really big enemy they fear is China. But they fear even more a kind of Russian-Chinese axis. And that, I think, is far more worrying, in a sense, behind the scenes than we realize. And of course, what that means is that if in some way Russia can be really tied down in Ukraine and its equipment, its morale, its people, and most crucially, its economy really weakened, then that really takes a very large piece out of this strategic jigsaw in America's favor. I don't want to overstate that, but I think, you know, when the full details of the thinking become available, maybe 
five, 10, even 15 years time, it looked very different to now. Because the reality is, this is my personal view, I stated before, this is a conflict which can only finally be solved by negotiation. That's a very grim thing to say. You will always get labeled a PISA because obviously that means in some way you've got to negotiate with Putin. I suspect behind the scenes that there are plenty of very intelligent people in Kiev who know this, even in government, and even now will be prepared for some sort of negotiation, starting at least initially with some sort of ceasefire. But it does not seem to be that there is the push to do that. Because I think it's certainly the case that with the Russian the Russian problems recently, the Ukraine advance that you were talking about at the start, over the next two months, really sort of October through to the end of November, is the opportunity when it might be possible to start negotiations. Because once this war gets bogged down in winter, remember we haven't had this. This war started at the end of February within a month of the start of spring. But this is the whole of the winter ahead. And if in some way we don't get a settlement in that time, then I'm afraid the real, realistic thing is this war is going to go on for maybe two or three years, sapping really uh, Russia's uh, economy to you know the, the success of many people in the West. Now, it's difficult to put this through, but that's a fear, I think, that sort of long-term analysts, people, particularly peace researchers, actually, people who really understand how wars can and come to, come to an end, these sort of people, I think, get getting seriously worried about the situation we're moving into, precisely at the time when, as Rachel and others quite right really say, things are getting better in many parts of Ukraine. It seems, in a sense, I suppose, to be uh, something which doesn't gel, but I think it's part of the picture that we have to acknowledge. While, yes, we welcome the fact that more Ukrainians are actually going to live better lives uh, in the months to come, at least that's the way it seems. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um Tap Campbell, <clears throat> just as of a, a nice little debate here like that. Uh, so he's disputing that most information comes from Kiev. They ask for media blackout. Most of it's coming from locals on the grounds and Russian. Uh, Milly bloggers and Telegram channels instead. So just, yeah, what, what what's your thoughts on that? Because I know a lot of the basis as well that seems to be for a Russian retreat being genuine seems to be coming from pro Russian pro-war kind of Telegram. Yes, actually, Tad makes a very good point. And, and I, I do actually agree with him because I think I said at the start, if not, I should have done, that in this sort of situation, it's actually very difficult to analyse what is really going on because almost anything that is coming through from any kind of official source, Russian or Ukraine, is designed to have particular effects. And they may be, put it mildly, rather loosely connected with what's happening on the ground. 
Bertin, I think, is, is really, it's, the point he raises is very interesting because there is quite a lot of information coming out that the real ultra-nationalist uh, Russian uh, military or military-associated people, people who really take the view that this is the war that Russia might win, must win, uh, there's a lot of criticism actually directed at Putin and the people around him. That in fact they're they're facing the possibility to defeat some of these people, say, and essentially the, it may even be that Putin himself and his position may become very difficult. Not from the sort of left or the progressives, but from the really far right. Now we don't know because of that why it is that such people who are originally hugely support Putin are actually still getting on Telegram and allowed to spread the word around. Uh, mm. That, I think, is a bit of an anomaly, one which one would love to have the answer to that question. But no, he is right that that's a very important element, that overall, you know, any kind of analysis that anybody like me does is based very much on the veracity of the information. And the trouble is that when you've been following particular lines over a fairly long time, you learn ones which can be trusted and ones which can't be trusted. So that's why I think you have to have this one point is, so much of it could be false information. Uh, but allowing for that, I think it is still the case. The Ukrainians have made unexpected progress and the Russians in bigger trouble than they were a month ago. Just, uh, we'll talk about, as you say, we'll talk at length another time about tactical nuclear weapons. But, yeah. you know, interesting actually enough, when I was watching the parliamentary debate um, on the energy bill package the other day, and then a sudden, a sudden murmurings and something kind of panicky passing of notes amongst MPs. I actually, I actually feared because I thought if the, I did think maybe the Queen's dead, to be honest, but I thought maybe they suspend the chamber. But I actually thought to myself, what if Russia's used tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine? That was one of the things that went through my head. So what I wanted to ask really is, what do you think the chances are of Russia if it genuinely thinks to itself it faces defeat in Ukraine? And, you know, the, I don't think there's any example of a Russia, of, sorry, of a nuclear power facing a conventional military defeat. Obviously, the US did in, say, Vietnam, you can say Afghanistan, but it's not the same as you invade a country and you're just like pushed out. That, I mean, China and Vietnam had a land, I know, had a border war in the late 70s, but this seems to be quite unique, especially it's one ruled by an autocrat. So I suppose what, you know, if he loses, he faces potentially being overthrown, that the whole house of cards could just come toppling down. So do you think if he thinks he's going to lose, he could use tactical nuclear weapons? And what does that mean? Because I think a lot of people just think nuclear weapons, big mushroom cloud wiping out cities. And well, I mean, yeah, what is it, do, how likely is it? And do you think, do you think, it, what would it mean in practice? Well, I think, 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 the thing we have to remember is that NATO itself for many years and still now has a policy of first use of tactical nuclear weapons. And it was deep in NATO's strategy. We know a lot about it, far more than people realize, which is some stage we need to talk about it because it's something that's much more in the public eye. But if that was true and technically is still, still true for Britain, uh, for NATO, and it's also true for Britain, of course, then one should expect it to be true for Russia. Um, NATO is prepared to use low-yield tactical nuclear weapons in demonstration shots once they seemed to be at the receiving end of a conventional war, which they might lose. Now, turn the whole thing round, and you remember that right at the start of this conflict, um, the first four days were crucial. You know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the invasion started on the, on the Thursday. By Sunday morning, it was clearly going badly for the Russians. And that is when 
Putin, uh, almost with palpable anger, made this speech in which he said that NATO keep out or else this is going to wreak the worst havoc you can imagine. In other words, I can't remember the exact language, even the translation, but he's basically saying we are prepared to go to the next step. Does that mean they would do? Well, put it this way. If we get to the point where Russia is really having to withdraw from large areas of territory and appears to be facing at least a tactical defeat, that's when life does become dangerous. And that is where you really need some very skilled diplomacy to be able to work. And the point is, it doesn't mean um, that uh, Putin would suddenly order a single demonstration shot. But I think there's a real risk that he could threaten it uh, and say, threaten if you don't do so-and-so, then don't be surprised if this happens. And that is when I think it gets very tricky. We're not there. We're not there yet. But this is why I think when we see these very big gains being made and welcoming them, yes, that's great. But this is not, if I can use that awful phrase, this is not a typical war. We're in, to some extent, unknown territory. And that is where, you know, you really have to have a premium on wisdom. Uh, and you must avoid the idea that any kind of concession means that you are sort of an appeaser because it's not that kind of world anymore. And if you want that kind of world, you can start off by getting rid of all nuclear weapons. And that will mean remove one of the big problems. But we're not there now, and we're not going to be there for some time, I'm afraid. So meanwhile, we have to try and chart a way through, recognizing that while what has been happening is in many ways welcome, also raises this very, very tricky thing about the possibility of a sudden crisis which would have to be faced when you have an awful lot of hawks who want to get the most out of this war for rather different aims. Paul, thank you so much for giving us an update. Obviously, given uh, the current news cycle in Britain, I think it's important that we do talk about clearly what remains the biggest conflict in Europe since World War II, um, which obviously deserves to be discussed and it's good to put it in a, in, in a proper context because i think you know often the danger is you, you see a big counteroffensive like this and then all of a sudden think the whole tide has turned and maybe the war could end suddenly you know within a matter of weeks and clearly that's not unfortunately how wars tend to work and it's certainly not how this war as you explain is going to work either um so it's great to have your incisive thoughts and we do need to oh, talk about oh, and one quick thing it is yes. always possible um that the, in fact the russian war morale may collapse quite suddenly and in fact, it may be that Putin might even be deposed. That's possible. Really? really? It's, it's possible because we're very, it's very unclear just how strong the cohesion of the Russian army right across Ukraine is at present. So don't rule that out that that could happen. Yeah. I have to say that it is very unlikely. And what we've been going through the last couple of minutes, I'm afraid, is more likely. But one can always live in hope. And at this time, a little bit of hope goes a long way. I suppose that's what, I mean, it's a very different conflict, obviously, but that's what happened arguably with germany in 1918 where you suddenly have yes. a, which is why the stab in the math back myth was then propagated obviously by the nazis though, but it was the idea you know they, they still had this intact army and the rest of it but morale and so on all collapsed yes. and obviously you had a revolution in germany um yeah fascinating stuff so it is still uncertain and, and maybe that will yeah. be how the war ends great well paul as ever honestly such an honor to have you really appreciate your thoughts and your wisdom so thank you so so much thank you thanks for having me Take care. Speak to you soon. Um, great stuff as ever from Paul. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.